Welcome to Sermons from Iceland, a podcast that highlights the most recent sermons from Lofstofan Baptista Kirka, a Bible-based church in the Reykjavik, Iceland area. Pastor Gunnar Ingi Gunnarsson and the ministry staff of Lofstofan are grateful that you're joining us for today's study in God's Word as a supplement to your weekly routine of meeting with your local church to worship Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The following was recorded on Sunday, January 9, 2022. Today's message title, Abiding in Jesus, John chapter 15, verses 4 through 12. All right, so we're going to be jumping into John 15, and we're going to be dwelling there for the next, uh, yeah, it's the second one, yeah, second to last one. There you go. Wow. Ooh. See, we don't need vitamin D. <laughs> we just need to turn on the lights. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, we're going to be dwelling on John 15 for the next three weeks. And I, I want to read to us uh, verses 4 through 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the back. If you don't have an English Bible at home, you can take one of those copies. Um, I just realized there's some nice Bibles and the and uh, the the... What is it? Lost and found too. <laughs> Been there for a while. So if you need a nice Bible, go to go to Lost and Found. No, uh, anyways, so maybe if you lost your Bible a while ago, check check out Lost and Found. Um, but John 15, 4 through 12, let's read this text together. It says, or should we stand up? Uh, wake up a little bit? Should we should we dance? No, I'm just kidding. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commitments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my command, uh, commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Amen. You may be seated. So uh, from the first page of the Bible to the last, you have this unfolding story of God's redemptive plan uh, taking place. And when you think about, okay, what is the goal in this unfolding story? What does God want? And why is he active in creation? Well, if you go to the first page of your Bible, you will see a couple of chapters there in Genesis. Uh, maybe, maybe you can fit three chapters on your first couple of pages in the Bible. Um, and there, God is walking with humanity in the garden. They are, Adam and Eve are abiding in God. And sadly, through their disobedience to God, this perfect relationship between God and man is broken. And one of the things that you will notice in our text today is, uh, Abiding in God, abiding in Christ is directly tied to our obedience to Christ. And, and, and 
there, like he talks about keeping my commandments just as I've kept my father's commandments and so on. And so when Adam and Eve disobey and stop keeping the commandments of God, the abiding in God stops and sin enters the world. And just as you'd expect when you sort of walk away from the source of light, when you have a lamp in a room, the more, the farther away you walk away from the lamp, the more darkness starts to creep in. And eventually if you get far enough, darkness takes over. But what happens when humanity start not only walking away from the source of light, but walking away from the source of life itself? Not only is God the creator, he's the sustainer of life. And so when, when there's a rupture between the relationship of man and God, you start to see death creep in, murder creep in, decay starts to sort of slowly take over the human heart and, 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 and it starts to not only affect our relationship with God, it has a direct effect on our relationship one, one another. All of a sudden love is sort of switched out for violence. And even the earth itself is to be affected by this separation. And in Jesus and his coming and him taking on the curse of our sin and disobedience, it causes our relationship with God to be reconciled. We come boldly before the throne of grace, as the scripture says, and one day we won't simply feel God at work in us or see him at work around us. One day we will behold him with our eyes. And, and so if you flip from the first page of scripture, you see that there's this abiding in God. There's a relationship between man and God that is perfect. And if you go all the way over to the last page of scripture, to Revelation 22, one through five, you see the same thing is happening there. One day, all of creation will be like it was supposed to be. And you read these five verses where it says, then the angels show me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the end of the lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, amen? But the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more, amen to that. <laughs> no more vitamin D deficiency, amen. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So from the first page of scripture to the last, the goal of God is to live in relationship with us, humanity his creation with a special obligation to show who he is to other people, to rule over creation as his ambassadors, to walk with him, to enjoy him, to find satisfaction in him. And when and we were singing, I'll run to the father again and again and again, and we could keep singing that again part over and over again because we need it every single day. That's what we were created for, to run to the father. But think about this, in the garden, what happens? When they sin, Adam and it's not God that starts hiding away from them. It's Adam and Eve starts to hide away from God. And it's been that story ever since. And yet we can sing like we did today. This is my story. This is my song. I don't have a, I don't have a story anymore where it's just me running away from God. I have a savior in Christ. Without Jesus, 
This relationship with God would have been simply ruptured by our parents, Adam and Eve, and never been restored. Our story would have simply been that we were created with a desire that was never fulfilled for a relationship that was never restored. We would have seen that we, you know, we look around, we look inward and we see that we need a savior and we would have looked around and there would have been no one to play that role. We would have looked around in vain. When we remove Jesus out of the equation, what a sad story that all of humanity has. We would have tried our best to earn our way into heaven, to approach God, but the scripture tells us he dwells in inapproachable light. We can't. Our days would have been marked by strife, sort of like, I don't know, there hasn't been a lot of snow this winter, but that's how I imagine it. If, if Jesus wouldn't have come, we would have tried to go to God, but we would have been like a car that's stuck in the snow. That, yeah, the wheels are spinning, but he's not going anywhere. You know what that's like, uh, right, Matt? <laughs> he got introduced to that this winter. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of energy spent you, we, can, we can do that and you can do that. And even there's a lot of people maybe sitting in pews in churches that don't realize this. It's not about how much you earn the love of God. It's what he's done to come to you. We would have simply been tired, yet we would have been unsatisfied and we would have been uh, saviorless. Is that a, a word? <laughs> Without a savior, we would have needed a savior. But while we cannot approach the throne of God, Jesus excuses himself from glory, from comfort, from praise in heaven to meet us in the mud on a mission to save us. When we cannot approach the throne room of God, Revelation tells us the throne room of God comes to us. We will eat of the fruit of the tree of life. We will live in the light of glory of God and we will be in right relationship with him like we were created to be. But here's the problem. For many of us, we flip through the first page of scripture and the last, and we see it as, yes, we were intended for community with God in the first pages of scripture. And yes, in the end, we will be restored in that community with God. But for most, I think, Christians, that's simply sort of a historical fact on one end and a future expectation and hope on the other. And we might say, no, wait a minute, I've been forgiven in Christ. My relationship with Christ has been restored. And yes, for many, you've confess Jesus to be your Lord and you've accepted his sacrifice and received his gift with gratitude and praise. We are children of God. But for many, I, I wonder if we tap into sort of just the, the smallest portion of the Christian life when it's so much more that has to offer. It's sort of like uh, if you have a relationship, Facebook has done this with countless of people, like people who you were in high school with or something, you haven't talked to them in 10 or 20 years. And all of a sudden you you find them on Facebook and, and you both realize how much weight you've gained and all this type of stuff, fun stuff, right? And, and you tap into this relationship. Maybe it's a relationship you've been longing to catch up with this person and hear what's going on with his life or her life. And, and then you would finally be reconciled after 20 years of being apart and out of you know, like our desires fulfilled to be with this person. And, and we would just both sit there in silence, twiddling our fingers awkwardly staring at the floors. It's like, yeah, we, we have been restored. We're in the same room together, but there's way more that we can be doing. First of all, we can give each other a hug. We can catch up on all the stuff that's happened. We can talk. And, and yet I feel like maybe that's where a lot of Christians are. Yeah, our relationship with Christ has been restored, 
And yet we sit there twiddling our fingers, just kind of waiting for the future expectations of one day I will see him face to face. But in John 15, Jesus talks about abiding in him. And for the next three weeks, I want us to unpack what abiding in Jesus is, maybe from a theoretical perspective to a theological perspective to a practical perspective, what it is that Jesus is calling us to when he says, abide in me. And are we as a church, as individuals, abiding in Christ? This is an offer, a standing offer that says, come abide in me. Even the promise of it is so that my joy may be in you. It's not this sort of like, oh, okay, I guess we'll go abide in Jesus. You know, it's like, no, I want your joy, as my joy to be in you. So are we simply, you know, like the person whose relationship with his long lost friend has been restored and yet we are not taking advantage of it, just awkwardly staring at the floor in silence when there's so much more to be had. Now, a few years ago, there was this ad uh, <laughs> in TV. I think it was like, a, uh, like one of these Scandinavian ads. And it was, I think for an iPad, if I understood the ad correctly, but it was a daughter in the kitchen preparing something in front of this bowl, like cutting down vegetables. And the dad was in the background cutting vegetables as well. And she asked him a question. It's like, hey, uh, how did you like the iPad we gave you for, for your birthday? And he's like, oh, I, good. I like it a lot. And she's like, well, have you figured out how to you know, install the apps and how it works? And he's like, apps? What are you talking about? And all of a sudden, he, he stops chopping his vegetables and he comes to the bowl where she's working and he, he scrapes off all the vegetables and he's using the iPad as, as the cutting board. Uh, and she just looks at him in like horror, realizing he didn't know this was a, like a computer <laughs> that he can use for way more than a cutting board. And he sort of scrapes it off. Then he takes it to the sink and he rinses it off and he puts it in the washer as she just stands there kind of terrified. Like, oh man, he, did, he totally missed the point of this iPad. And yet... I wonder if that's how we view the life that Jesus is offering us. Like there's so much more we could do with this. There's so much more to be had. And yet we just use it. Yeah, I guess you can use an iPad as a cutting board, right? That's one way you can use it. But there's plenty of other things, cooler things that you can do. Um, one frightening text is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where the apostle Paul He's clearly talking to two groups of Christian Christians and he, he uses the metaphor that we are here on earth and we're, we're working on a house together. Jesus is the foundation and some are building with gold and silver and precious stones. And then others are building with uh, wood, hay and uh, stubble or straw. And in the end, our building is gonna be tested by fire. Those who build with gold and silver and precious stone, their, their material, their work is going to be left. And those who build with wood, hay, and straw, it's going to burn away. And he says this in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 14 through 15. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So he's saying there, there's some people who are going to be saved, but they're going to look back at a life where they may have built a huge and awesome looking building, but it was all wood, hay and straw. And once it was tested by fire, it was all gone. And you come into glory realizing you've wasted the life. 
You've wasted all of the things that he had to offer for you. You, you, could, have, you could have earned an eternal heavenly treasure and yet we just spent our days focused on what everybody else is focused on. Again, notice both groups in the text are Christians. One used their life to build stuff with eternity in mind, with you know, putting their resources and what matters into eternal things and the others, they didn't. Jesus is calling us to abide in him and he has offered us this grace. He's offered us joy. And it's kind of like this iPad and like, are we gonna, are we gonna actually get to experience all that this faith has to give us? Or are we simply gonna, I don't know, go with the stream? You, you, you don't have to be a, a live fish to go with the stream. You can be a dead fish just flowing downstream. And it's difficult to go against the stream. But are we? You can abide in Christ in the most minimal way possible, it seems, that Scripture is trying to tell us. Simply, He's your Savior, and one day you'll see and enjoy Him. He's your Lord, but you maybe just haven't had the people around you to teach you that there's more to the Christian life the more that he wants to be uh, for you to be and do. And in John 15 verses four through six, the picture he uses is that of a branch connected to vine. And now for most of us, we wouldn't even know where to buy seeds to, you know, grow wine bottles, right? I'm just kidding. So it starts out as grapes, obviously, but here's, here he's using the, the, the image of uh, a, a vine uh, and grapes growing on a vine and, and the branches of the vine. It turns out um, that he's actually uh, painting this picture of him being the necessary thing for the Christian life. Now, one of the things that I've noticed with a lot of Christians is we tend to focus on the fruit. What is the fruit of the Christian life? Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all that type of stuff. And there's a lot of people who take that it's like, those are really good things to have in my life and I'm gonna aim to make that uh, a part of my life. But what Jesus is saying here is like, before you focus on the fruit, focus on me, the vine. If, if you're not connected to me, who is the source of life, you can never produce the fruit. And here's what a lot of Christians have done. We've made it our aim to have the fruit of the spirit in our lives. And yet we've removed Jesus Christ as the vine. And what we're left with it's this faith that is just another way of teaching morality. And yet I think we're all fully aware that we fail in so many ways to meet the morality, the standard that God has for us. And so we need something more than simply morality or changed behavior. We need changed hearts. We need a savior. And so here we have Jesus and he's saying, if you're, if you're not connected to me, I am the vine where life is found. If you're not connected to me, you are like a branch that's cut off a tree. Yeah, you look alive for a while, but then once, you know, once it's been a few days, once it's been a few weeks, you're going to start to wither away and rot and die. And yet, for so many of us, even, even like for so many people who are outside of the faith, they say, Jesus, yeah, he was a moral teacher. And they make it their aim to imitate Jesus. But what Jesus is saying here is like, no, we need as Christians, a part of abiding in Jesus is to realize our full dependency on him to give us the supernatural ability to live this life. Before you go and start to make it your aim to do a bunch of stuff for God, 
you must at first check your relationship with God. Like one, one of the most terrifying passages in scripture is in Matthew seven, you have a story of a bunch of guys who did a lot in God's name. And yet God says to them, I never knew you. They come to him and say, we prophesied in your name. Like, man, Jesus, I preached so many sermons in your name. And Jesus says to him, I never knew you. Or we've, we healed the sick. We did miracles in your name. I never knew you. Yeah, you were using my name, but I did not know you. Our success is not being busy. Our success is not in meeting goals. If we aren't connected to Jesus as the branch connected to the vine, we will not bear any fruit that's gonna last. We will build maybe a fancy structure, but it's gonna be wood, hay, and stubble, and it's gonna be burned away when it's tested by fire. We will wither away and we will die out of spiritual malnourishment if we are not connected to Jesus. Our success is abiding in Jesus. And what is abiding in Jesus? One of the things that we see in the passage today is obedience to Jesus. You listen to my commands. And one of the things that he's done with his life in the gospels is to show, what does he, what does he say in the text? As I have followed my father's commandments, what does he say in the gospels? I say nothing unless I hear my father tell me to say this. I do nothing unless my father does it. And so he's been not only uh, been the perfect man, God man, but he's been our example as to what it looks like to abide in him. He says, as I've followed in my father's commandments, so abide in me by following my commands. This goes along with what we talked about last week. We must sift through the noise of the modern world to hear God whispering in the obscurity at times. We must fight to make time, to preserve the time, to do what matters from an eternal perspective. It's so easy to be caught up in job, in school, in our to-do list, and then completely neglect what matters eternally. It's so easy to, you know, when life gets busy, to let, to, to let your time with God be the first thing that feels the impact of our busyness, when we probably need prayer more at that time. And enjoying the relationship that Jesus made possible with his blood, we must fight to abide. So the first picture, it reminds us of one thing that abiding is, it is full dependency on God to give us the life, the power, the guidance and nourishment that we need to bear food. And that's, that's hard for, for Icelanders to hear. I mean, we, we drove by uh, Halter Laxness house. Who's like, there's uh, by the way, did you know that Iceland has like the most Nobel price uh, winners per capita in the world? We have like one. So that's the joke. We have one Halter Laxness. <laughs> um, we are number one in everything. So Halter Laxness, we were driving outside of town. We were driving by his house. And I just remembered he, he's, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for literature. And, and one of his most famous books is called Independent People, talking about uh, sort of, <laughs> um, and, and there was this joke this last week. Anybody follow the, the unfolding story of the windmill, the stubborn windmill? Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> it became like a thing. There was a live stream of a squat trying to blow down a windmill in Iceland. And everybody's like, yes, everybody's cheering for the windmill to win because <laughs> they had blown it up like five different times and it was still standing. And there, there was like these tweets about, this is representing the, the stubbornness of Icelanders, uh, this windmill, we have to cheer it on and all this type of stuff. And man, a message like, like this, 
that abiding in Christ means that we are fully dependent on him. And we think about Halter Luxness and being famous for writing a book called Independent People. Dependent, it's, it's literally the opposite. <laughs> it's not independent, it's dependent on God. Not very popular if you want to elevate yourself. And that's the thing, we can't conflate our worship of God with elevating our own egos. We have to learn to say with John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease. If I'm going to abide in God, I'm going to fully depend on him to give me the life, the power, the wisdom I need to navigate this stuff. I need him to give me life. And if Jesus is simply the add-on, sort of the spice that you sprinkle over the main meal, and that's you and your ability and your wisdom and all your plans, and you're going to sprinkle some Jesus on your life, let me tell you, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. That's not at all what dependency means. It, and I, and man, I'm going on a tangent here, but there's this bumper stickers in the US. <laughs> I love bumper stickers, especially if they're more cheesy, I love them more. Uh, there's these Christians who have a bunch of bumper stickers in the US that says, Jesus is my co-pilot. It's like such a perfect way to describe Western Christianity. <laughs> I'm taking Jesus on a ride with me. He doesn't get to touch the steering wheel, but he gets to be here as my co-pilot. He might give me suggestions and I might say no. But when we confess Jesus as Lord, what we're really saying is we're in the back seat. He's driving. I'm just enjoying the ride. He gets to lead. He is the vine. I'm the branch. And if I bear any fruit, it's because of him, his life. So we have here what abiding does, but what does it look like? Check out verses seven through eight, where he starts to hint at that a bit. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Okay, there's questions that come up with that, right? I hope, I hope there are questions that come up with that. Uh, maybe, um, yeah, talk to me after the service if, if you feel unsatisfied. But by this, my, fa- my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so provide, uh, prove to be my disciples. All right, so first he says that abiding in Jesus is letting his words abide in us. What does that mean? Well, of course, the Bible is the foundation for all of life. So is that what Jesus is trying to say here? If you want to abide in me, you need to read through a Bible in a year. If if you're going to abide in me, you need to make sure you have your quiet time at least 45 minutes every day. If you're going to abide in me, well, let's put this in context. Who who are the people that he's he's writing to here? They, They don't have, there's no printing press. People don't have Bibles in their homes. They, they may go to a church service. Some of them don't even know how to read. So they may go simply, if you, if, by the way, if you, if you think it's not reading your Bible by listening to it through, through audio and you feel like that's somehow less than actually reading it, just remember for like the first 1500 years of the church, <laughs> that's how most Christians got to understand the Bible by hearing it read to them. And so he's not really saying there, it's like, oh, it's, it's all dependent on your quiet time in the morning. I'm not saying that's bad. That's really, really good. We have a privilege to have the Bible, but is that what he has in mind? Do lots and lots of Bible reading, Bible study, make sure you have your quiet time, read through the Bible in a year. Well, we want to make the Bibles our foundation for all of life, for, for theology, for, for, um, for everything. But remember the context, not everybody here has the Bible. It is more than just about reading scriptures to know the word of Christ. 
and uh, and to let that sink in and produce life change. Like, think about this. In the Gospels, who were the people who knew the Bible most? Pharisees, right? It's an ironic. I, I was listening to a couple of priests in the state church talk. And it's like, well, one of the things I like about the Lutheran state church is you have to be educated to be a priest. And I was like, all right, yeah, I understand the argument there. But he's talking about formal education, which would mean if Jesus would come, he couldn't work in the state church of Iceland. You know, Peter, the apostle couldn't work. He was a fisherman. He's not highly educated. So it's this, but what, what is he talking about? It's not just knowing a bunch of stuff. The Pharisees knew a bunch of stuff. They're even helping Herod kill the baby. who's like the promised Messiah. Where's the promised Messiah supposed? Oh, I'm a Bible scholar. Bethlehem, go kill all the babies in Bethlehem. Dude, you're totally missing the point. It's not about knowing the word, like knowing the words on the page. It's about actually living in light of it. We've somehow divorced knowledge from living in light of the knowledge. And so what it, what it means there, yeah, you may have had Christians in the first century that may have had less Bible knowledge than we have, but they were living in light of it. It produced a changed life, a changed mindset, changed priorities, a changed focus. And man, we want to definitely say, if you're messed up, join the club. We're all messed up in here. Come as you are. Don't feel the urge to try to, you know, fix your life before you feel like you can present it to Christ. We come to him and he is the one who changes us. He loves us just as we are. So come as you are, but he loves us enough to not let us stay that way. He starts to change us and mold us so that we have more joy in him and we start to look more like him and it starts to change the way we live. So, you know, like one of the, the, the things I love about Acts, like 4.13, there's this verse where it says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and I love this, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love these verses because it says, hey, they, 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 they may not have been impressed by their speech, but they saw Jesus in them. They had walked so intimately with Jesus that when they spoke, people saw not simply Peter and John, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So as we abide in Jesus and the words of Jesus abide in us and we start to reflect on who he is, remember, what were we created for? being image bearers of God. In the first page of scripture, it's about our relationship with God being perfect. In the last page of scripture, it's our relationship with God being restored. Verse eight says, then you will glorify God the Father and you will bear much fruit. That is the fruit of Christian life. And here's what a lot of people have done. They've said, well, if you talk to a lot of Icelanders, it's, you know, and you ask them, what is the Christian faith about? It's about being a moral person, but is it really? Because that's supposed to be the fruit of the Christian life, but the root of the Christian life is always Christ. So our main focus shouldn't be on the fruit, but about making sure that we are connected with the vine that gives us the fruit. If we're not connected to the life-giving power of the vine, we can strive day and night. We can work hard as much as we want, but we can never produce fruit. And here's the thing. How do we know that we are in fact letting the words of Christ abide in us? 
Well, one thing is we can, we can reevaluate our mindset and how we think about things. Okay, so I want to ask this question because I was thinking about this this week. Don't answer it aloud, but think about yourself. So if I said to you, what makes a good church good? What is it that defines a good church? Think about the answers that you might give yourself and the probably popular answers among people and even Christians today. Like what would define a good church? Some people would be like, well, if it didn't have a good place, a meeting place and maybe a good parking, then I would probably wouldn't come. Honestly, you know, I was in Bible school. You know what they said? The number one indicator of people staying in your church was how clean the bathrooms were, right? So you're all here by the grace of God because I don't, I don't I have no idea how the bathrooms are. <laughs> what is it that defines a good church? Good preaching, maybe a specific genre of music, maybe only piano, or maybe the opposite, a full band at 120 decibels. You want to leave with your ears ringing. Maybe a strong kids ministry or youth ministry or young adults ministry, good leadership, a nice online presence. Maybe you're less pragmatic than that and maybe you're more focused on theological stuff, a church that's expositional maybe, a church that has plurality of elders, has a profound and, and, and you know, a good church membership maybe. But let's, let's think about this. If we're called to heed the words of Christ, what does the Bible tell us about what a good church is? And the funny thing is, it mentions almost none of these things. It suggests something like there's, there's, uh, there's definitely things in the scripture where you can say, okay, there was definitely membership in the Corinthian church and so on and so forth, but there's no way to like how they did membership or anything like that. If we're called to think through, okay, what does Christ think a good church is? You start to read verses like care for the orphans and widows. James 1.27. How far down the list was that on our, our, our list of what a good church is? Or love one another just as I've loved you and therefore be known as my disciples by your love for one another as we see in John 13, 34 to 35. Or make disciples. Right? And we often like, when we read that, make disciples, oh, have church services. No, make disciples. <laughs> That's what he said, not gather together on Sundays, make disciples, show one another what it look, looks like to live the Christian life. Bear one another burdens, Galatians 6, 2. You notice the lack of like ministries and leadership culture there, or, you know, like even when, even when it's talking about the qualifications of a pastor in a church, there's one that's one that's a skill-based. He should be able to teach. The others are all character. And so it's like, if we're, if we're thinking through, okay, how, am I abiding in Christ? Are we as a church abiding in Christ? One of the things that we can start doing is to check, is my mindset, is my focus the same as the word of God? Like in Galatians, it's so interesting. You know what he says in Galatians when he sent out to plant churches? One of the only things that he, like one of the only things that they made sure that he had while going out was to take care of the orphans and the widows. Make sure to do that. And yet I've, I've read so many church planning books. I've listened to so many lectures and not one of them has mentioned to take care of the orphans and the widows. And maybe at that time we have to ask ourselves, well, 
if abiding in Christ is to abide in his commands, how much of what we do as a church is actually based on my preference versus what God has commanded the church to be. So as we start to abide in Christ is to check, where's my heart at? Where's my motivation even in giving? Are we trying to earn the love of God? Even in serving, are we trying to impress God with how much he served while we don't recognize that even the breath in our very lungs is a gift from him? I think we can, for a lot, you know, how, how much of what we do in the modern church does could be done without the guidance or leading of the Holy Spirit. I think we could put on a production. I could probably put together a good speech. But John 13 tells us to love each other like Christ has loved us. Do you realize what that means? He died for us. It's not just simply like, oh, he's such a caring person. No, it's like, no, that's, some, that's a weirdly caring person. That's like supernatural type of love. We couldn't make disciples. We couldn't teach them the way of Jesus if the Holy Spirit is not our main teacher. It scares me to think that if the Holy Spirit were to re- be removed from our ministries and our churches today, how many of the church would actually notice that, yeah, we're gathering, but God has left the building. Not that he ever would, but, you know, is it pragmatism that leads our way or prayer? Is it the spirit of the age? that leads how we do things and how we think about our faith or is the spirit of God? Do we ask, what can I get away with? What will God tolerate versus what will please him? This is how we test and evaluate if we are in Christ, are we abiding in him? Are we taking his commands seriously? Not, not that we simply know what he's said, but that we own them and live in light of them. Now, growing up, I, uh, this might come as a surprise to you. I used to play some soccer as anybody who tried to fit in, it did. Uh, I gave up eventually. Uh, but our, t- our, our, our classmates, we started a team called Thurman, the Thunder. Uh, it was a horrible team, <laughs> uh, but we had t-shirts, cool, bright red t-shirts with a bright orange thunder on it. Uh, and the, well, it was a horrible team, but there was one good player and he's a professional soccer player today. So it explains a lot. Um, but everybody knew that the, we didn't have much of a strategy, but we just knew that we're going to give the ball to Gumme and Gumme is going to do what he does. Uh, and, and he's going to make sure to score some goals and we're just going to try to not hurt each other as we run around the field and we're just going to let Gumme do his thing. But the point is, every, every game that Thurman played, which was like three, uh, we knew we need to get the ball to Gumme and let him just do his thing. It was so obvious to us because we saw his skill. And, and when I was thinking about this, abiding in the words of Christ, I, I think about what promises scripture gives us, that it's inspired by God, that equips us for good work. It, uh, it teaches us the way of righteousness. It, and yet like, and the Holy Spirit is our teacher, is our comforter. And I was just thinking, okay, I want to abide in God, but how many times have I relied on myself, my own wisdom, my own strategy? How many times am I willing to read books on an author that's supposedly, supposedly an expert on missiology or theology or church planting. And yet here's the Holy Spirit who is an expert, expert in all of these things. He is the expert at all times. And yet I have the word of God that's equipping me for every good work. That's a promise that we have. And how many times do we ignore that? I knew it when we were playing at Thurman. Grimm is the guy to get the ball. 
And yet do we know it as the church? Man, the Holy Spirit transforms, builds up his church. The Holy Spirit is the one we need to work in us and through us. We need to be faithful to the word of God. Why is it that we don't pass the ball to the one who's like able to bring us home? Next week, we're gonna wrap up the second portion of these verses in John 15. But I wanna encourage you this week and challenge you to do, do, do three things. Number one, examine your hearts, your motives, your thoughts, and your, and your processes. Number one, de- like, are you dependent on God to lead and empower you? Are you truly honest with yourself? Are you, are you relying on your own wisdom or strength or your own thinking? Number two, do you rely on the words of experts, the culture or people's preferences to inform you of what the faith should look like more than God himself? And number three, will you fight this year to make it your aim to abide in Jesus, to, to live faithful, uh, to live a faithful life uh, and in faithfulness to his word? And if you're in here today and you've not yet come to faith, that means that you take the step where you surrender your life to Jesus. There's nothing better to offer you than that. If I had a hundred million kroners in my bank account and I would give that to you, that is nothing compared to the eternal glory of and the joy and hope and grace found in Jesus. And yet how many of us would do crazy things to get a hundred million kroners right now? And yet we have Jesus who's calling us to live some crazy ways, like some crazy uh, faith-filled lives but yet we are hesitant. If you're in here and you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus and you haven't just simply received his grace as your savior, then do that today. If you're a new Christian and you you want to grow in abiding in Jesus, it comes through obedience to his words, right? And so he's called us to, yeah, there's things in the Bible that tells you what the next steps are. You need to get baptized. You need to Make sure you're walking with brother or sister who's holding you accountable and teaching you what the Christian life looks like. Um, if you if you need someone like that in your life, talk to me after the service. And then for others who may have been attending, I believe strongly that one of the ways that we are obedient to Jesus is to be a part of community. And uh, like, think about if, you, if you've been attending for a while and you haven't gone through membership class, maybe that could be your next step. Uh, for, for a lot of you, you're already kind of behaving like members. <laughs> uh, you're already a part of the family. Um, and I would encourage you to just think through that um, and plug into serving one another. Because Jesus, what, is it, what does he do? He's, he serves us. It's the only king in history that doesn't send the peasants to die for him. He dies for us. <laughs> and he, you know, there's ways to serve one another, both here on Sundays, but too often we as the modern church think of ministry only happening on Sundays. There's serving one another by meeting up for coffee, uh, praying with one another, uh, keeping each other accountable, um, bringing meals. Like there's some people in isolation right now that could just need some people running around for them and helping them out. Um, serving in our daily lives. What an exciting life that we get to live where even the most mundane tasks. I love that the apostle Paul says literally, whether I eat or drink, I want to do it to the glory of God. <laughs> How basic is that? eating and drinking or whatever I do. And that whatever is literally the rest of life. Everything we do, no matter how mundane it is, we can do it with an eternal purpose in mind. Um, That got me through some horrible years at a very mundane job that I used to have. I was like, there's a purpose in this. 
I could do this to the glory of God. Um, but it, literally everything we do has eternal, we can ha- give it eternal significance as we think through making, glorifying Christ in our, and glorifying God the Father in our daily life. If you need to know what the purpose of life is, then there it is. Simply know God, to enjoy him, um, and to live, what is the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What a great answer. And if you want to talk or pray after this service, I would love to talk with you. But let me simply pray as we seek to go into this week and abide in Christ. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for all the ways that you've loved us. We thank you for the fact that we get to know you, that we get to enjoy you, that we can gather today to sing songs of hope because of the hope that you've given us in Christ. And so Father, as we go into this week, I pray that we would not simply know your words more, but we would live in light of them. We would, we would taste of the hope, the joy that we have in you. And Father, as we go and study more next week, what it means and looks like to abide in you, I pray that we would simply seek to glorify you in all of life. May we dwell on these truths. May we seek to be transformed in light of these truths. And Father, may we always be driven by the good news of Jesus. Man, we are never here to earn. We are never here to simply produce fruit. We produce fruit because of the life that you've given us. You are the foundation of our faith. May we never seek to impress you, to earn your love, but may we simply see to want to honor you, to want to love you because you've loved us. So Father, help us enjoy your grace. Help us look more like you. Help us make much of you and show you to the rest of the people around us in the way we love one another, in the way we are united. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Sermons from Iceland, a weekly podcast highlighting the Sunday teaching ministry of Lofstofan Baptiste Kirka in Reykjavik, Iceland. If you have a desire to see the gospel spread in Iceland, consider partnering with the Iceland Project. For more information, go to theicelandproject.org. If you live in Iceland or plan on visiting Iceland soon, make plans to worship with us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. Our address is Fagrating 2A, Kopavar, only 7 miles or 12 kilometers southeast of downtown Reykjavik. You can reach Pastor Gunnar via the Lofstofan Facebook page or by email. His address is lofstofan at lofstofan.is. Join us next week for another Bible-based and Jesus-centered message on Sermons from Iceland. Iceland.